see some people could make it on a rainy day like this. We have Erin Riley Sanders here from the School of Teaching and Learning who teaches children's literature. So she's the perfect person for the topic she's going to read about, chills and thrills. And I haven't met a kid yet who didn't like ghost stories or scary stories. And I'm sure she has a great selection. It looks like quite a pile. So Erin, would you like to get started? I would love to. Thank you so much. Um, this is a selection of books that I picked for our sort of cold and blustery October afternoons um, with the idea that these books have some really beautiful language in it. So the language itself is sort of chilling and then the stories that they start to develop hopefully are thrilling. They're not going to be, you know, jump out and scare you stories, but hopefully they'll draw you in with their sort of spooky scenes. The first one is The Graveyard Book. This is by Neil Gaiman, one of my all-time favorite authors. He has a really wonderful cadence to his, um, to his writing as well as his reading. If you get this on audio, it takes a little bit of time to get used to, but once you get into it, it's, it just, it's amazing. Um, this is technically a children's book, but is perfectly acceptable for adult audiences. And I'm going to start at the beginning, and we'll give you just a little bit of this. This is uh, from the first chapter, How Nobody Came to the Graveyard. There was a hand in the darkness, and it held a knife. It's illustrated too. The knife had a handle of polished black bone and a blade finer and sharper than any razor. If it sliced you, you might not even know you had been cut. Not immediately. The knife had done almost everything it was brought to that house to do. Both the blade and the handle were wet. The street door was still open, just a little, where the knife and the man who held it had slipped in, and wisps of nighttime mist slithered and twined into the house through the open door. The man, Jack, paused on the landing. With his left hand, he pulled a large white handkerchief from the pocket of his black coat, and with it he wiped off the knife and his gloved right hand, which had been holding it. Then he put the handkerchief away. The hunt was almost over. He had left the woman in her bed, the man on the bedroom floor, the older child in her brightly colored bedroom, surrounded by toys and a half-finished model. That left only the little one, a baby, barely a toddler to take care of. One more, and his task would be done. He flexed his fingers. The man Jack was, above all things, a professional, or so he told himself, and he would not allow himself to smile until the job was finished. His hair was dark, and his eyes were dark, and he wore black gloves of the thinnest lambskin. The toddler's room was at the very top of the house. The man Jack walked up the stairs, his feet silent on the carpeting. Then he pushed open the attic door and he walked in. His shoes were black leather and they were polished to such a shine that they looked like dark mirrors. You could see the moon reflected in them, tiny and half full. The real moon shone through the casement window. Its light was not bright and it was diffused by mist, but the man Jack would not need much light. The moonlight was enough, it would do. He could make out the shape of the child in the crib, head and limbs and torso. The crib had a high, slatted sides to keep the child from getting out. 
Jack leaned over, raised his right hand, the one holding the knife, and he aimed for the chest. And then he lowered his hand. The shape in the crib was a teddy bear. There was no child. The man Jack's eyes were accustomed to the dim moonlight, so he had no desire to turn on an electric light. And light was not that important, after all. He had other skills. The man Jack sniffed the air. He ignored the sense that had come into the room with him, dismissed the sense that he could safely ignore, honed in on the smell of the thing he had come to find. He could smell the child, a milky smell, like chocolate chip cookies and the sour tang of a wet, disposable nighttime diaper. He could smell the baby shampoo in its hair, something small and rubbery, a toy, he thought. And then, no, something to suck that the child had been carrying. The child had been here. It was here no longer. The man Jack followed his nose down the stairs through the middle of the tall, thin house. He inspected the bathroom, the kitchen, the airing cupboard, and finally the downstairs hall, in which there was nothing to be seen but the family's bicycles, a pile of shopping bags, a fallen diaper, and stray tendrils of fog that had insinuated themselves into the hall from the open door to the street. The man Jack made a small noise then, a grunt that contained in it both satisfaction and frustration. He slipped the knife into its sheath, in the inside pocket of his long coat, and he stepped out into the street. There was moonlight, and there were street lights, but the fog stifled everything, muted light and muffled sound, and made the night shadowy and treacherous. He looked down the hill towards the light of the closed shops, then up the street where the last high houses wound up the hill on their way to the darkness of the old graveyard. The man Jack sniffed the air, then, without hurrying, he began to walk up the hill. Ever since the child had learned to walk, he had been his mother's and father's despair and delight. For there never was such a boy for wandering, for climbing things, for getting into and out of things. That night, he had been woken by the sound of something on the floor beneath him falling with a crash. Awake, he soon became bored and had begun looking for a way out of his crib. It had high sides, like the walls of his play behind downstairs, but he was convinced that he could scale it. All he needed was a step. He pulled his large golden teddy bear into the corner of the crib, then, holding the railing in his tiny hands, he put his foot into the bear's lap, the other foot up on the bear's head, and he pulled himself up into a standing position. And then he half climbed, half toppled over the railing and out of the crib. He landed with a muffled thump onto a small mound of furry, fuzzy toys, some of them presents from relations from his first birthday, not six months gone, some of them inherited from his older sister. He was surprised when he hit the floor, but he did not cry out. If you cried, they came and put you back in the crib. He crawled out of the room. Stairs that went up were tricky things, and he had not yet entirely mastered them. Stairs that went down, however, he discovered, were fairly simple. He did them sitting down, bumping from step to step on his well-padded bottom. He sucked on his number, the rubber pacifier his mother had just begun to tell him that he was getting too old for. His diaper had worked itself loose on his journey, on his bottom down the stairs, and when he reached the last step, when he reached the little hall and stood up, the diaper fell off. He stepped out of it. He was only wearing a child's nightshirt. 
The stairs that led back up to his room and to his family were steep, but the door to the street was open and inviting. The child stepped out of the house a little hesitantly. The fog wreathed around him like a long-lost friend, and then, uncertainly at first, then, with increasing speed and confidence, the boy tottered up the hill. The fog was thinner as you approached the top of the hill. The half-moon shone, not as bright as day, not by any means, but enough to see the graveyard, enough for that. Look, you can see the abandoned funeral chapel, iron doors, padlocked, ivy on the sides of a spire, a small tree growing out of the guttering at roof level. You could see stones and tombs and vaults and memorial plaques. You could see the occasional dash or scuttle of a rabbit or vole or a weasel as it slipped out of the undergrowth and across the path. You would have seen all these things in the moonlight if you had been there that night. You might not have seen a pale, plump woman who walked the path near the front gates. And if you had seen her with a second more careful glance, you would have realized that she was only moonlight, mist, and shadow. The pale, plump woman was there, though. She walked the path that held, that led through a clutch of half-fallen tombstones towards the front gate. The gates were locked. They were always locked at four in the afternoon in winter, eight at night in the summer. Spike-top iron railings ran around part of the cemetery, a high brick wall around the rest. The bars of the gates were closely spaced. They would have stopped a grown man from getting through, even stopped a 10-year-old. Owens, called the pale woman, in a voice that might have been the rustle of the wind through the long grass. Owens, come and look at this. She crouched down and peered at something on the ground as a patch of shadow moved into the moonlight, revealing itself to be a grizzled man in his mid-forties. He looked down at his wife, then looked at what she was looking at, and he scratched his head. Mistress Owens, he said, for he came from a more formal time than our own, is that what I think it is? And at that moment, the thing that he was inspecting seemed to catch sight of Mrs. Owens, for it opened its mouth, letting the rubber nipple it was sucking on fall to the ground, and it reached out a small, chubby fist, as if it were trying for all the world to hold on to Mrs. Owens' pale finger. Strike me silly, said Mr. Owens, if that isn't a baby. Of course it's a baby, said his wife, and the question is, what is to be done with it? I dare say that is a question, Mistress Owens, said her husband, and yet it is not our question, for this here baby is unquestionably alive, and as, as such is nothing to do with us and is no part of our world. Look at him smile, said Mrs. Owens. He has the sweetest of smiles, and with one insubstantial hand she stroked the child's sparse blonde hair. The little boy giggled with delight. A chilly breeze blew across the graveyard, scattering the fog in the lower slopes of the place. For the graveyard covered the whole top of the hill, and its paths wound up the hill and down and back upon themselves. A rattling, someone at the main gate of the graveyard was pulling and shaking it, rattling the gates and the heavy padlock and the chain that held them. There now, said Owens, it's the babe's family. Come to bring him back to the loving bosom. Leave the little man be, he added, because Mrs. Owens was putting her insubstantial arms around the toddler, soothing, stroking. Mrs. Owens said, he don't look like it, nobody's family, that one. The man in the dark coat had given up on rattling the main gates. He was now examining the smaller side gate. It, too, was well locked. 
There had been some vandalism in the graveyard the previous year, and the council had taken steps. Come on, Mistress Owens, leave it be, there's a dear, said Mr. Owens, when he saw a ghost, and his mouth dropped open, and he found himself unable to think of anything to say. You might think, and if you did, you would be right, that Mr. Owens should not have taken on so at seeing a ghost, given that Mr. Owens and Mrs. Owens were themselves dead, and had been for a few hundred years now. But given that the entirety of their social life, or very nearly, was spent with those who were also already dead. But there was a difference between the folk of the graveyard and this. A raw, flickering, startling shape, the gray color of television static, all panic and naked emotion which flooded the Owenses as if it were their own. Three figures, two large, one smaller, but only one of them was in focus was more than an outline or a shimmer. And the figure said, my baby, he is trying to harm my baby. A clattering, the man outside was hauling a heavy garbage can across the alley to the high brick wall that ran around the part of the graveyard. Protect my son, said the ghost. And Mrs. Owens thought it was a woman. Of course, the babe's mother. What did he do to you, asked Mrs. Owens. But she was already not certain that the ghost could hear that. Recently dead, poor love, she thought. It's always easier to die gently, to wake in due time in the place you were buried, to come to terms with your death, and to get acquainted with the other inhabitants. This creature had nothing but alarm and fear for her child, and her panic, which felt to the Owenses like a low-pitched screaming, was now attracting attention, for other pale figures were coming from all over the graveyard. Who are you? Caius Pompeius asked the figure. His headstone was now only a weathered lump of rock, but 2,000 years earlier, he had asked to be laid to rest on the mound beside the marble shrine, rather than to have his body sent back to Rome. And he was one of the most senior citizens of the graveyard. He took his, his responsibilities extremely seriously. Are you buried here? Of course she's not, fresh dead by the look of her. Mrs. Owens put an arm around the woman's shape and spoke to her privately in a low voice, calm and sensible. There was a thump and a crash from the high wall beside the alley. The garbage can had fallen. A man clambered up onto the top of the wall, a dark outline against the mist-smudged street lights. He paused for a moment, then climbed down the other side, holding on to the top of the wall, legs dangling, then let himself fall the last few feet down into the graveyard. But my dear, Mrs. Owen said to the shape, now all that was left of the three shapes that had appeared in the graveyard, he's living, we're not, can you imagine? The child was looking up at them, puzzled. It reached for one of them, then the other, finding nothing but air. The woman's shape was fading fast. Yes, said Mrs. Owens in response to something that no one else had heard. If we can, then we will. She turned to the man beside her. And you, Owens, will you be a father to this little lad? Well, I what? said Owens's brow crinkling. We never had a child, said his wife, and his mother wants us to protect him. Will you say yes? The man in the black coat tripped in the tangle of ivy and half-broken headstones. Now he got to his feet and walked forward more carefully, startling an owl which rose on silent wings. He could see the baby, and there was triumph in his eyes. Owens knew what his wife was thinking when she used that tone of voice. They had not, in life and in death, been married for over 250 years for nothing. Are you certain, he asked? Are you sure? 
sure as I ever have been of anything, said Mrs. Owens. Then yes, if you'll be its mother, I'll be its father. Did you hear that? Mrs. Owens asked the flickering shape in the graveyard, now little more than the outline, like distant summer lightning in the shape of a woman. It said something to her that no one else could hear, and then it was gone. She'll not come here again, said Mrs. Mr. Owens. Next time she wakes, it'll be in her own graveyard, or wherever it is she's going. Mrs. Owens bent down to the baby and extended her arms. Come now, she said warmly, come to Mama. To the man Jack, walking through the graveyard towards them on a path, his knife already held in his hand, it seemed as if a swirl of mist had been curled around the child in the moonlight, and that the boy was no longer there, just damp mist and moonlight and swaying grass. He blinked and sniffed the air. Something had happened, but he had no idea what it was. He growled in the back of his throat, like a beast of prey, angry and frustrated. Hello, called the man who called Jack, wondering if perhaps the child had stepped on something. His voice was dark and rough, and there was an odd edge to it, as if of surprise or puzzlement at hearing himself speak. The graveyard kept its secrets. Hello, he called again. He hoped to hear a baby cry or other a half-word, or to hear it move. He did not expect what he actually heard, a voice, silky smooth, saying, Can I help you? The man Jack was tall. This man was taller. The man Jack wore dark clothes. This man's clothes were darker. People who noticed the man Jack when he was about his business, and he did not like to be noticed, were troubled or made uncomfortable or found themselves unaccountably scared. The man Jack looked up at the stranger, and it was the man Jack who was troubled. I was looking for someone, said the man Jack, slipping his right hand back into his coat pocket, so the knife was hidden, but there if he needed it. In a locked graveyard at night, said the stranger. It was just a baby, said the man Jack. I was just passing and I heard a baby cry and I looked to the gates and I saw him. Well, what would anyone do? I applaud the public spiritedness, said the stranger. And yet, if you manage to find this child, how are you planning to get out of here with it? You can't climb back over the wall holding a baby. I would have called until someone let me out, said the man Jack. A heavy jingling of keys. Well, that would be me then, said the stranger. I would have had to let you out. He selected one large key from the key ring and said, follow me. The man Jack walked behind the stranger. He took his knife from the pocket. Are you the caretaker then? Am I? Certainly in a manner of speaking, said the stranger. They were walking towards the gates and the man Jack was certain away from the baby. But the caretaker had the keys, a knife in the dark. That is all it would take. And then he could search for the child all through the night as if he needed to. He raised the knife. If there was a baby, said the stranger without looking back, it probably wouldn't have been here in the graveyard. Perhaps you were mistaken. It's unlikely that a child would come in here after all. Much more likely that you would have heard a night bird and saw a cat, perhaps, or a fox. They declared this place an official nature reserve, you know, 30 years ago, around the time of the last funeral. Now think carefully and tell me you are certain it was a child that you saw. The man Jack thought. The stranger unlocked the side gate. A fox, he said. They make the most uncommon noises, not unlike a person crying. No, 
Your visit to this graveyard was a misstep, sir. Somewhere the child you seek awaits you, but he is not here. And he let the thought sit there in the man Jack's head for a moment before he opened the gate with a flourish. Delighted to have made your acquaintance, he said, and I trust that you will find everything you need out there. The man Jack stood outside the gates to the graveyard. The stranger stood inside the gate, and he locked it again and put the key away. Where are you going? asked the man Jack. There are other gates than this, said the stranger. My car is on the other side of the hill. Don't mind me. You don't even have to remember this conversation. No, said the man Jack agreeably. I don't. He remembered wandering up the hill that what he had thought to be a child turned out to be a fox, that a helpful caretaker had escorted him back to the street. He slipped the knife into its inner sheath. Well, he said, good night. A good night to you, said the stranger, whom Jack had taken for a caretaker. From the shadows, the stranger watched Jack until he was out of sight. Then he moved through the night, up and up to the flat place below the brow of the hill, a place dominated by an obelisk and a flat stone set into the ground, dedicated to the memory of Josiah Worthington, local brewer, politician, and later baronet, who had, almost 300 years before, bought the old cemetery and the land around it and given it to the city in perpetuity. He had reserved for himself the best location on the hill, a natural amphitheater with a view of the whole city and beyond, and had ensured that the graveyard endured as a graveyard for which the inhabitants of the graveyard were grateful, although never quite as grateful as Josiah Worthington thought they should have been. There were, all told, some 10,000 souls in the graveyard, but most of them slept deep or took no interest in the night-to-night affairs of the place, and there were less than 300 up of them up there in the amphitheater in the moonlight. The stranger reached them as silently as the fog itself, and he watched the proceedings unfold from the shadows, and he said nothing. And that is just the beginning of nobody's childhood in the graveyard. They call him Bod. They do decide to keep him. I'll, I'll spill that part of the story, but for the rest, you'll have to figure it out. This is another piece of children's literature called The Underneath by Kathy Appelt, um, another one of my favorite stories. And this is just a brief introduction to this story um, about some little animals. But unfortunately, we start with sad animals. There is nothing lonelier than a cat who has been loved, at least for a little while, and then abandoned on the side of the road, a small calico cat. Her family, the one she lived with, has left her in this old and forgotten forest, this forest where the rain is soaking into her soft fur. How long has she been walking? Hours? Days? She wasn't even sure how she got here, so far from the town where she grew up. Something about a car, something about a long drive, and now here she is, in this old forest where the rain slipped between the branches and settled into her fur. Pine needles were soft beneath her feet. She heard the water splash onto the puddles all around. Noticed the evening roll in, the sky grow darker. She walked and walked, farther and farther from the red dirt road. She should have been afraid. She should have been concerned about the lightning, slicing the drops of rain in two and electrifying the air. She should have been worried about falling in the dark. But mostly, 
she was lonely. She walked some more on the soft pine needles until at last she found an old nest. Maybe a squirrel's, maybe a skunk's, maybe a porcupine. It's hard to tell when a nest has gone unused for such a long time, and this one surely had. She was grateful to find it, an old nest, empty, a little dry, but not very, but somewhat out of the rain, away from the slashes of lightning, here at the base of a gnarled tupelo tree, somewhere in the heart of the piney woods. Here, she curled up into a tight ball and waited, purged to her unborn baby. And then the trees, the tall and kindly trees, watched over her while she slept, slept the whole night through. Ah, the trees. On the other side of the forest, there is an old loblolly pine. Once, it was the tallest tree in the forest. A hundred feet up it reached, right up to the clouds, right beneath the stars. Such a tree, now broken in half. It stands beside the street, the creek, called the Little Sorrowful. Trees are keepers of stories. If you could understand the languages of oak and elm and tallow, they might tell you about another storm, an earlier one, 25 years ago to be exact, a storm that barreled across the sky filling up the streams and bayous, it, how it dipped and charged and rushed the boughs. Its black clouds were enormous, thick and heavy with the water it scooped up from the Gulf of Mexico due south of here, swirling its way north, where it sucked up the moisture from the Sabine River to the east, the river that divides Texas and Louisiana. This tree, a thousand years old, huge and wide, straight and true, would say how it lifted its branches and welcomed the heavy rain, how it shivered as the cool water ran down its trunk and washed the dust from its long needles, how it sighed in that coolness. But then, in that dwindling of rain, that calming of wind, that solid darkness, a rogue bolt of lightning zipped from the clouds and struck. Bark flew in splinters. The trunk sizzled from the top of the crown to the deepest roots, the bolt pierced the very center of the tree. A tree as old as this has a large and sturdy heart, but it is no match for a billion volts of electricity. The giant tree trembled for a full minute. A shower of sparks and wood fell to the forest floor. Then it stood completely still. A smaller tree might have jumped, might have spun and spun and spun until it crashed into the earth. Not this pine, this loblolly pine, Rooted so deep into the clay beside the creek, it simply stood beneath the blue-black sky while steam boiled from the gash sixty feet up, an opened wound. This pine did not fall to the earth or slide into the creek, not then and not now. It still stands. Most of its branches have cracked and fallen. The upper stories have long ago tumbled onto the forest floor. Some of them have slipped into the creek and drifted downstream down to the Silver Sabine, down to the Gulf of Mexico, down. But the trunk remains, tall and hollow, straight and true, right here on the Little Sorrowful, just a mile or so from the Calico Cat, curled inside her dry nest while the rain falls all around. Meanwhile, deep beneath the hard red dirt, held tightly in the grip of the old tree's roots, Something has come loose. A large jar buried centuries ago, 
a jar made from the same clay that lines the beds of the creek, a vessel with clean lines and a smooth surface, whose decoration was etched by an artist of merit, a jar meant for storing, storing berries and crawdads and clean water, not for being buried like this so far from beneath the ground, held in the tight web of the tree's tangled roots. This jar, with its contents, a creature older than the forest itself, older than the creek, the last of her kind. This beautiful jar, shaken loose in the random strike of lightning that pierced the tree's heart and seared downward into the tangled roots. Ever since then, they had been loosening their grip. Trapped, the creature has waited. For a thousand years, she has slipped in and out of her deep, deep sleep, stirred in her pitch-black prison beneath the dying pine. Soon, she whispered into the deep and solemn dark, my time will come. Then she closed her eyes and returned to sleep. It wasn't the churning of the morning doves that woke the calico cat, or the uncertain sun peeking out from the clouds, or even the rustling of a nearby squirrel. No, it was the baying of a hound. She had never heard a song like it, all blue in its shape, blue and tender, slipping through the branches, gliding on the morning air. She felt the ache of it. Here was a song that sounded exactly the way she felt. Oh, I woke up on this bayou, got a chain around my heart. I'm sitting on this bayou, got a chain tied around my heart. Can't you see I'm dying? Can't you see I'm crying? Can't you throw an old dog a bone? Oh, I woke up, it was raining, but it was tears came falling down. Yes, I woke up, it was raining, but those tears came falling down. Can't you see I'm trying? Can't you hear my crying? Can't you see I'm all alone? Can't you throw this old dog? A bone. She cocked her ears to see which direction it came from. Then she stood up and followed its bluesy notes deeper and deeper into the piney woods, away from the road, from the old abandoned nest, away from the people who had left her here with her belly full of kittens. She followed that song. For cats, a hound is a natural enemy. This is the order of things. Yet how could the calico cat be afraid of a hound who sang, whose notes filled the air with so much longing? But when she got to the place where the hound sang, she knew that something was wrong. She stopped. In front of her sat a shabby frame house with peeling paint, a house that slumped on one side as if it were sinking into the red dirt. The windows were cracked and grimy. There was a rusty pickup truck parked next to it, a dark puddle of thick, oil pooled beneath its undercarriage. She sniffed the air. It was wrong, this place. The air was heavy with the scent of old bones, of fish and dried skins, skins that hung from the porch like a ragged curtain. Wrong was everywhere. She should turn around. She should go away. She should not look back. She swallowed. Perhaps she had taken the wrong path. What path which should she take? All the paths were the same. She felt her kitten stir. It surely wouldn't be safe to stay here in this shabby place. She was about to turn around when there it was again, the song, those silver notes, the ones that settled just beneath her skin. Her kitten stirred once again, as if they too could hear the beckoning song. She stepped closer to the unkempt house, 
stepped into the overgrown yard. She cocked her ears and let the notes lead her, pulled her around the corner. There they were, those bluesy notes. Oh, I woke up, it was raining, but it was tears came falling down. Yes, I woke up, it was raining, but the tears came falling down. Can't you see I'm trying? Can't you hear my crying? Can't you see I'm all alone? Can't you throw this old dog a bone? When she realized this song wasn't calling for a bone, it was calling for something else, someone else, another step, another corner. And there he was, changed to the corner of the back porch. His eyes were closed, his head held back, baying. She should be afraid. She should turn around and run. She should climb the nearest tree. She did not. Instead, she walked right up to this baying hound and rubbed against his front legs. She knew the answer to his song, for if she could bray, her song would be the same. Here, right here. So that is the meeting of a cat with a hound and a very scary house and a creature in the same woods. But you'll have to read the rest of my book. So on a little bit lighter note, but still just as spooky. Wanted to bring a little bit of um, poetry to share with you guys. And I'll just share a couple, not the whole thing. This is an ABC book. I know, we're getting a little bit young here, but trust me, it's fun. Um, with paintings by Lane Smith, who I think is fabulous, and poems by Eve Merriam. And this book actually came about sort of the opposite of how books normally happen as far as picture books. Uh, the paintings were done first, and then Lane Smith thought, well, you know, he'd make a nice little wordless alphabet book. But the publishers thought that the paintings were so strong that they needed a strong text to go with them. So they hired Eve Merriam to write poems that went with them. And then there was a little bit of back and forth. Invisible became icicle. And so he had to do new, po new pictures to match the new poems. Um, so it's a really neat piece of collaboration. It's actually been published twice. Once is Halloween ABC. So I'll pass that around. You can take a look at the paintings that are in it. Um, but this is the more recent version, Spooky ABC, that has the pictures a little bit bigger. I like it a little bit better. As a side note, it's also been censored rather often um, because it does have some rather scary things in it. And they are scary pictures. I find them scary. But we'll just take a look at A. So we've got A right here. Apple. Apple, sweet apple, what do you hide? Wormy and squirmy, rotten inside. Apple, sweet apple. So shiny and red, taste it, don't waste it. Come and be fed. Delicious, malicious. One bite and you're dead. We've got a couple spooky ones in here. I really like the sounds in tea. Trap, more scary pictures here, trap. Get a trap, set a trap, 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 trap. Tap you, slap you, try to wiggle free. Hoax you, hoax you, snare, take care. Catch you, latch you, never get free. Hook you, crook you, can't catch me. The one that really got this book into trouble was I for icicle, with an icicle. An icy stabbing so swiftly done, the victim scarcely felt it. The police were baffled. 
Where's the weapon? The sun shines down to melt it. Any other favorite letters? Favorite letter? Good. Sorry, I hear an M and an L. We'll do M and L. That sounds fun. Mask. Guises, disguises, all kinds of surprises. A peasant's a king, a king's a knave, a knave's a donkey, a donkey's a slave. Conceal, conceal, peel off and reveal the mask that no one detects, your face that the mirror reflects. And lair, lunging, plunging through the woods, past the torchlight, past the fire, loping, leaping, leading on through the brambles, through the briar, inviting you into its lair. Close your heart to what is there. Close your heart to what you learned, or you may not be taken in. Or you may be taken in, and you may not return. But lots of fun. I'll pass those around. This is um, actually an adult book um, by Patrick Rothfuss, um, one of my favorite fantasy authors. If you are um, grown up a little bit past Harry Potter and interesting, interested in some more sort of uh, darker schoolboy antics. Uh, this is a really, really great little book. Um, but I really love the opening scene for it, which is sort of a, um, we're far in the future, well not so far in the future, but he's about to tell his tale to someone. And this is, this is the setting from which he tells the tale, but it's really, really beautiful. And this is the prologue, a silence of three parts. It was night again. The Waystone Inn lay in silence, and it was a silence of three parts. The most obvious part was a hollow, echoing quiet made by things that were lacking. If there had been a wind, it would have sighed through the trees, set the inn sign creaking on its hooks, and brushed the silence down the road like trailing autumn leaves. If there had been a crowd, even a handful of men inside the inn, they would have filled the silence with conversation and laughter, the chatter and clamor one expects from a drinking house during the dark hours of night. If there had been music, but no, of course there was no music. In fact, there were none of these things, and so the silence remained. Inside the waystone, a pair of men huddled at one corner of the bar. They drank with a quiet determination, avoiding the serious discussions of troubling news. In this, they added a small, sullen silence to the larger, hollow one. It made an alloy of sorts, a counterpoint. The third silence was not an easy thing to notice. If you listened for an hour, you might begin to feel it in the wooden floor underneath and in the rock splintering barrels behind the bar. It was in the weight of the black stone hearth that held the heat of a long dead fire. It was in the slow back and forth of a white linen cloth rubbing along the grain of the bar. And it was in the hands of the man who stood there, polishing a stretch of mahogany that already gleamed in the lamplight. The man had true red hair, red as flame. His eyes were dark in distance, and he moved with the subtle certainty that comes from knowing many things. The waystone was his, just as the third silence was his. This was appropriate, as it was the greatest silence of the three, wrapping the others inside itself. It was deep and as wide as autumn's ending, 
It was as heavy as a river smooth stone. It was the patient cut flower sound of a man who was waiting to die. Chapter one, a place for demons. It was spelling night and the usual crowd had gathered at the Waystone Inn. Five wasn't much of a crowd, but five was as many as the Waystone ever saw these days, times being what they were. Old Cobb was filling his role as storyteller and advice dispensary. The men at the bar slipped their, sipped their drinks and listened. In the back room, a young innkeeper stood out of sight behind the door, smiling as he listened to the details of a familiar story. When he awoke, Taberlin the Great himself found himself locked in the high tower. They had taken away his sword and stripped him of his tools. Key, coin, and candle were all gone. But that weren't the worst of it, you see. Cobb paused for effect. Because the lamps on the wall were burning blue. Graham, Jake, and Shep nodded to themselves. The three friends had grown up together, listening to Cobb's stories and ignoring his advice. Cobb peered closely at the newer, more attentive member of his small audience, the Smith's apprentice. Do you know what this meant, boy? Everyone called the Smith's apprentice boy, despite the fact that he was a hand taller than anyone here, small towns being what they were, he would most likely remain boy until his beard filled out, or he bloodied someone's nose over the matter. The boy gave a low, slow nod. The Chandrian. That's right, Cobb said approvingly. The Chandrian. Everyone knows that blue fire is one of their signs. Now he was. But how'd they find him? The boy interrupted. And why didn't they kill him when they had the chance? Hush now, you'll get all the answers before the end, Jake said. Just let him tell it. No need for that, Jake, Graham said. Boy's just curious. Drink your drink. I drank me drink already, great, Jake mumbled. I need another, but the innkeep's still skinning rats in the back room. He raised his voice and knocked his empty mug hollowly on the top of the mahogany bar. Boy, we're thirsty men in here. The innkeeper appeared with five bowls of stew and two warm round loaves of bread. He poured more beer for Jake, Chef, and Old Cobb, moving with an air of bustling efficiency. The story was set aside while the men tended to their dinners. Old Cobb tucked away his bowl of stew with the predatory efficiency of a lifetime bachelor. The others were still blowing steam off their bowls when he had finished the last of his loaf and returned to his story. Now Taberlin needed to escape, but when he looked around, he saw his cell had no door, no windows. All around him was nothing but smooth, hard stone. It was a cell no man had ever escaped. But Taberlin knew the names of things, and so all things were his to command. He said to the stone, break, and the stone broke. The wall tore like a piece of paper. And through the hole, Taberlin could see the sky and breathe the sweet spring air. He stepped to the edge, looked down, and without a second thought, he stepped out into the open air. The boy's eyes went wide. He didn't! Cobb nodded seriously. So Taberlin fell, but he did not despair, for he knew the name of the wind, and so the wind obeyed him. He spoke to the wind, and it cradled and caressed him. It bore him to the ground as gently as a puff of thistledown, and sent him on his and set him on his feet, softly as a mother's kiss. And when he got to the ground and felt his side where they stabbed him, they saw it wasn't hardly a scratch. Now maybe it was just a piece of luck. Cobb tapped the side of his nose knowingly. Or maybe it had something to do with the amulet he was wearing underneath his shirt. What amulet? The boy asked eagerly through a mouthful of stew. Cobb leaned back on his stool, glad for the chance to elaborate. A few years, a few days earlier, Taberlin had met a tinker on the road. 
Even though Taberlin didn't have much to eat, he shared his dinner with the old man. Right, sensible thing to do, Graham said quietly to the boys. Everyone knows a tinker, a tinker pays for kindness twice. No, no, Jake grumbled, get it right. A tinker's advice pays kindness twice. The innkeeper spoke up for the first time that night. Actually, you're missing more than half, he said, standing in the doorway behind the bear. A tinker's debt is always paid once for any simple trade, twice for freely given aid, thrice for any insult made. The men at the bar were almost surprised to see Coat standing there. They had been coming to the Waystone every felling night for months, and Coat had never interjected anything of his own before. Not that you could expect anything else, really. He'd only been in town for a year or so. He was still a stranger. The Smith's Prentice had lived here since he was 11, and he was still referred to as that Rannish boy, as if Rannish were some foreign country and not a town less than 30 miles away. Just something I heard once, Coat said to fill the silence, obviously embarrassed. Old Cobb nodded before he cleared his throat and launched back into the story. Now this amulet was worth a whole bucket of gold royals, while on account of Taberlin's kindness, the tinker sold it to him for nothing but an iron penny, a copper penny, and a silver penny. It was black as a winter night and cold as ice to the touch, but as long as it was round his neck, Taberlin would be safe from the harm of evil things, demons and such. I'd give a good piece for a thing like that these days, Shep said darkly. He had drunk most and talked least over the course of the evening. Everyone knew that something bad had happened out on his farm last Sunday night, but since they were good friends, they knew better than to ask him for details, at least not this early in the evening, not as sober as they were. Aye, who wouldn't, Old Cobb said judiciously, taking a long drink. I didn't know the Chandrians were demons, the boy said. I heard. They ain't demons, Jake said firmly. They were the first six people to refuse Telu's offer, Telu's choice of the path and he cursed them to wander the corners. Are you telling this story, Jacob Walker? Cobb said sharply, because if you are, I'll just let you get out with it. The two men glared at each other for a long moment. Eventually, Jake looked away, muttering something that could conceivably have been an apology. Cobb turned back to the boy. That's the mystery of the Chandrian, he exclaimed. Where do they come from? Where do they go after they've done their bloody deeds? Are they men who sold their souls, demons, spirits? No one knows. Jake Cobb shot Jake a profound, disdainful look. Though every halfwit claims he knows. The story fell further into bickering at this point about the nature of the Chandrian, the signs that showed their presence to the wary, whether the amulet would protect Taberlin from bandits or mad dogs or falling off a horse. Things were about to get heated when the front door banged open. Jake looked over. It's about time you got in, Carter. Tell that this damn fool that the difference between a demon and a dog, everybody knows. Jake stopped mid-sentence and rushed to the door. God's body, what happened to you? Carter stepped into the light, his face pale and smeared with blood. He clutched an old saddle blanket to his chest. It was an odd, awkward shape, as if it were wrapped around a tangle of kindling sticks. His friends jumped off their stools and hurried over at the sight of him. I'm fine, he said, as he made his slow way into the common room. His eyes were wild around the edges, like a skittish horse. I'm fine, I'm fine. He dropped the bundled blanket onto the nearest table, where it knocked hard against the wood, as if it were full of stones. His clothes were crisscrossed with long, straight cuts. His gray shirt 
hung in loose tatters except where it was stuck to his body, stained a dark, sullen red. Graham tried to ease him into a chair. Mother of God, sit down, Carter. What happened to you? Sit down. Carter shook his head stubbornly. I told you I'm fine. I'm not hurt that bad. How many were there, Graham said. One, Carter said, but it's not what you think. God damn it, I told you, Carter, old Cobb burst out with the sort of frightened anger that only relatives and close friends can muster. I told you for months, Sal. Now, you can't go out alone, not even as far as Baden. It ain't safe. Jake laid a hand on the old man's arm, quieting. Just take a sip, Graham said, trying to steer Carter up into a chair. Let's get that shirt off you and get you cleaned up a little bit. Carter shook his head. I'm fine, I just got cut up a little, but the blood is mostly Nellie's. It jumped on her, killed her about two miles outside town, past the old stone bridge. A moment of serious silence followed the news. This Miss Prentice laid a sympathetic hand on Carter's shoulder. Damn, that's hard. She was gentle as a lamb, too. Never tried to bite or kick when you brought her in for shoes. Best horse in town. Damn, I'm... He trailed off. Damn, I don't know what to say. He looked around helplessly. Cobb finally managed to free himself from Jake. There, he repeated, shaking a finger in Carter's direction. There's folks out there that would kill you for a pair of pennies, let alone a horse and a cart. What are you going to do now, pull it yourself? There was a moment of uncomfortable quiet. Jake and Cobb glared at each other while the rest seemed at a loss for words, unsure of how to comfort their friend. The innkeeper moved carefully through the silence. Arms full, he stepped nimbly around Chef and began to arrange some items on a nearby table. A bowl of hot water, shears, some clean linen, a few glass bottles, needle and gut. This never would have happened if he had listened to me in the first place, old Cobb muttered. Jake tried to quiet him, but Cobb brushed the younger man aside. I'm just telling the truth. It's a damn shame about Nellie, but you better listen now or he'll end up dead. You don't get lucky twice with those sort of men. Carter's mouth made a thin line. He reached up and pulled the edge of the bloody blanket. Whatever was inside flipped over once and snagged on the cloth. Carter tugged harder. There was a clatter like a bag of flat river stones appended on the table. It was a spider, as large as a wagon wheel, black as slate. The Smith Prentice jumped backward and hit a table, knocking it over and almost falling to the ground himself. Cobb's face went slack. Graham, Chef, and Jake made wordless startled sounds and moved away, raising their hands to their faces. Carter took a step backwards. It was almost like a nervous twitch. Silence filled the room like a cold sweat. The innkeeper frowned. They can't have made it this far west yet, he said softly. If not for the silence, it was unlikely that anyone would have heard him. But they did. Their eyes pulled away from the thing on the table and stared mutely at the red-haired man. Jake found his voice first. Do you know what this is? The innkeeper's eyes were distanced. Scrail, he said distractedly. I thought the mountains. Scrail, Jake broke in. Blackened body of God coat. You've seen these things before? What? The red-haired innkeeper looked up sharply, as if suddenly remember where he was. Oh, no, 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 of course not. Seeing that he was the only one within arm's reach of the dark thing, he took a measured step away. Just something I heard. They stared at him. Do you remember the traitor that came through about two span ago? They all nodded. Bastard tried to charge me. Ten pennies for half a, call, half a pound of salt, Cobb said reflexively, repeating the, claim, the complaint for perhaps the hundredth time. Wish I'd bought some more, Jake mumbled. Graham nodded silent agreement. 
He was a filthy shims, Cobb spat, seeming to find comfort in familiar words. I might pay it two in a tight time, but ten is robbery. Not if there are more of those on the road, Shep said darkly. All eyes went back to the thing on the table. He told me he heard them over near Melcombe, Coates said quickly, watching people's faces as they studied the thing on the table. I thought he was just trying to drive up prices. What else did he say, Carter asked. The innkeeper looked thoughtful for a moment, then shrugged. I didn't get the whole story. He was only in town for a couple hours. I don't like spiders, as Miss Prentice said. He remained on the other side of the table less than 15 feet away. Cover it up. It's not a spider, Jake said. It's got no eyes. It's got no mouth either, Carter pointed out. How does it eat? What does it eat? Sharp said darkly. The innkeeper continued to eye the thing curiously. He leaned away, leaned closer, stretching out a hand. Everyone edged further away from the table. Careful, Carter said. Its, its feet are sharp like knives. More like razors, Coates said. His long fingers brushed the squirrel's black, featureless body. It's smooth and hard like pottery. Don't go messing with it, the, the smith's apprentice said. Moving carefully, the innkeeper took one of the long, smooth legs and tried to break it in both hands like a stick. Not pottery, he amended. He set it up against the edge of the table and leaned his weight against it. It broke with a sharp crack. More like stone, he looked up at Carter. How did it get all these cracks? He pointed to the thin fractures that grazed the smooth black surface of the body. Nellie fell on it, Carter said. It jumped out of the tree and started to climb all over her, cutting her up with its feet. It moved so fast I didn't even know what was going on. Carter finally sank into the chair at Graham's urging. She got tangled up in her harness and fell on it, broke some of its legs. Then it came after me, got on me, crawling all over. He crossed his arms in front of his bloody chest and shuddered. I managed to get it off me and stopped on it, stomped on it as hard as I could. Then it got on me again. He trailed off his face ashen. The innkeeper nodded to himself as he continued to prod the thing. There's no blood, no organs, it's just gray inside. He poked it with a finger, like a mushroom. Great, tell you, just leave it alone. Smith's apprentice begged. Sometimes spiders like to twitch after you kill them. Listen to yourselves, Cobb said scathingly. Spiders don't get big as pigs. You know what this means. He looked around, making eye contact with each of them. It's a demon. He looked at the broken thing. Oh, come on now, Jake said. Disagreeing mostly out of habit. It's not like, he made an, an articulate gesture. It just can't. Everyone knew what he was thinking. Certainly there were demons in this world, but they were like Tellus angels. They were like heroes and kings. They belonged in stories. They belonged out there. Taberlin the Great had called up fire and lightning to destroy demons. Tellu broke them in his hands and sent them howling into the nameless void. Your childhood friend didn't stomp one to death on the road to Baden-Bert. It was ridiculous. Code ran his, his hands through his red hair, then broke the silence. There's one way to tell for sure, he said, reaching into his pocket. Iron or fire? He brought out a bulging leather purse. In the name of God, Graham pointed out, demons fear three things. Cold iron, clean fire, and the holy name of God. The innkeeper's mouth pressed into a straight line. It was not quite a frown. Of course, he said as he emptied his purse onto the table, then fingered through the jumbled coins. Heavy silver talents and thin silver drabs, copper jots, broken hay pennies and iron drabs. Does anyone have a shim? Just use a drab, Jake said. That's good iron. 
I don't want good iron, the innkeeper said. A drab has too much carbon in it. It's almost steel. He's right, said the smith's apprentice. Except it's not carbon. You use coke to make steel. Coke and lime. The inn nodded deferentially to the boy. You'd know best, young master. It's your business after all. His long fingers finally found a shim in the pile of coins. He held it up. Here we are. What'll it do, Jake asked. Iron kills demons, Cobb's voice was uncertain. But this one's already dead. It might not do anything. One way to find out. The innkeeper met each of their eyes briefly, as if measuring them. Then he turned purposefully back to the table, and they edged further away. Coat pressed the iron shim to the black side of the creature, and there was a short, sharp cracking sound, like a pine log snapping in a hot fire. Everyone startled, then relaxed when the black thing remained motionless. Cobb and the others exchanged shaky smiles, like boys spooked by a ghost story. Their smiles went sour as the room filled with the sweet, acrid smell of rotting flowers and burning hair. The innkeeper pressed the shim onto the table with a sharp click. Well, he said, brushing his hands against his apron, I guess that settles it. What do we do now? And I've got one more page, just a little bit of follow-up here. Hours later, the innkeeper stood on the doorway of the waystone and let his eyes relax into the darkness. Footprints of lamplight from the windows inns, from the inn's windows fell across the dirt road and the doors of the smithy across the way. It was not a large road, nor well-traveled. It didn't seem to lead anywhere as some roads do. The innkeeper drew a breath of autumn air and looked around restlessly as if waiting for something to happen. He called himself Coat. He had chosen the name carefully when he had come to this place. He had taken on a new name for most of the usual reasons and for a few of the unusual as well, not the least of which was the fact that names were important to him. Looking up, he saw a thousand stars glittering in the deep velvet of a night with no moon. He knew them all, their stories and their names. He knew them in a familiar way, the way he knew his own hands. Looking down, Coat sighed without knowing it and went back inside. He locked the door and shuttered the wide windows of the inn as if to distance himself from the stars and all their varied names. He swept the floor methodically, catching all the corners. He washed the tables and the bar, moving with a patient efficiency. At the end of an hour's work, the water in his bucket was still clean enough for a lady to wash her hands in. Finally, he pulled a stool from behind the bar and began to polish the vast array of bottles nestled between the two huge barrels. He wasn't nearly as crisp and efficient about this chore as he had been with the others. It soon became obvious that the polishing was only an excuse to touch and hold. He even hummed a little, although he did not realize it, and would have stopped himself had he known. As he turned the bottles in his long, graceful hands, the familiar motion eased a few tired lines from his face, making him seem younger, certainly not thirty, not even near thirty, young for an innkeeper, young with a man, young for a man with so many tired lines remaining and he does tell his tale to a visitor that comes to his inn, a long tale of some rowdy schoolboys and some great magics and crazy adventurers. Um, but recommend that one as well. Thank you, guys. <laughs>